listening to Affect Autism, where Affect is the number one tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions. Hello, welcome to Affect Autism, and this week we have with us a DIR expert facilitator and trainer, Christy Gozi, who is an infant mental health specialist in Fresno, California. She is a professor at Fresno City College. She coordinates the Early Intervention Certificate Program there, and she also owns and operates the Touchstone Family Development Center in Fresno, which is a DIR center. Welcome, Christy. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Such a pleasure. Well, it's nice to finally have you because um, I saw your Facebook group, and I know you've responded to posts that when we post our new blogs, and You've mentioned that you um, send some of the blog posts to families that you work with, so it's finally nice to meet in person and be able to chat. I know. I know. We come from all over. So this is wonderful seeing you face-to-face as well. And yes, all of our families have enjoyed your podcast so much, Uh, and I have referred so many families to Thank you, thank you. Parent groups, etc. So it's great to be with you. Great. Well, thank you. And today we're going to be discussing floor time with groups. So that includes um, right. parents that have a number of children, they have siblings, and mm-hmm. also small groups that could also include neurotypical children. So exactly. I'll, I'll tell you, Christy, I've had some questions emailed to me, and then also in the ICDL online parent support group that I have, um, I've had questions about how do I do floor time with my child when I have all these other kids or one other kid, or um, I have play dates where I invite people to my home and the kids may be neurotypical. Um, What do I, how do I uh, mediate as a parent? How do I explain to the other parent that my child is really just trying to communicate or my child is not misbehaving. It's just the way that their uh, systems are different. And so all of these issues have come up and and these questions have been asked to me. And I thought, who could I do a podcast with to talk about this? And your name came up because of what you do at your, at your center. So um, where do we start? Oh my gosh. Yes, this is an issue that I have faced time and time again, and I want to remind you that our Child Development Center at the college, uh, we provide a direct service early intervention program right in our full inclusion lab school setting, so we are facing this issue all the time, not only with parents, but also with teachers, Uh, teachers who are working with both neurotypical children and then how to... Um, how do I want to say how to support interaction for our neurodiverse children? So here we go. All right. I'm just going to kind of start in if that's okay. Absolutely. And then go ahead and ask questions. But first and foremost, in the DIR vein and in the foundational to the DIR model is understanding everyone's sensory function, of course. So that is actually where we start in our program, that we look at the neurodiverse child sensory profile, and then we look closely and study closely the sensory profiles of our neurotypical children as well. So oftentimes we can shape 
and interaction and support a beautiful uh, outcome by working and kind of, what do I want to say, juggling those sensory profile uh, views together. So that's the first thing. I also want to talk about parent sensory profile and teacher sensory profile as well, because that adds to the mix as well. That's actually where we start. You were about to ask a question. Well, no, I let you go because I was going to say, what does that look like? And then you brought up the parent piece. And the first thing that popped into my mind was my podcast with Dr. Stuart Shanker, who does self-reg. And he said where they had to start working and and they work with everybody. The self-reg program is not specifically for uh, neurodiverse kids. It's for the schools in general. He's been working a lot of schools in Canada and, and different places, but they started with the staff and the teachers and said, instead of a lecture about what is self-reg, they said, let's look at your self-reg. What causes you stress? And once the teachers understood their own self-reg process, it so much um, helped them understand, oh, this child isn't misbehaving. This child is having stress. And and what is that? So um, I guess I would, I would say how, Describe that process of juggling, as you put it, when you have the group coming together, whether it's a dyad or a triad or a four to five, six kids, whatever it looks like, however many adults in the room. What does this process look like? It's discussion, Dario. We start actually with reflective process and reflective practice. And we remind one another of our own sensory profiles. And we create experiences that first will support our sensory profile. For example, if I have a teacher or a mama who has, who's over-registered in her auditory uh, function, that noise and a lot of talking is very dysregulating, then we insert some movement breaks, we can insert some silent activities, some mirroring, we can uh, uh, do, uh, one of my favorites is pause and play, which we get an old remote, TV remote, and we pass it around, and at any moment we can pause, and we all have to freeze and regulate And then we can continue to play. And someone always has the remote. And actually, that's a fantastic experience to help everyone's regulation. You know, Dr. Serena Weeder often used the term uh, that in the moment that we have lost regulation, we dysregulated, we, we have to stop the world. And so that little uh, imagery and that little tool helps children and parents and teachers stop the world for just a moment so that we can reorganize our bodies, look at our visual spatial situation. Is someone too close to me? Someone not close enough to me? And helps us reorganize. So let me ask you this. That sounds great in a more of a controlled setting where you're, you're mm-hmm. having a group and sitting together. What about at home when some kid whips something, glass breaks, kids are screaming, running around, the pause button doesn't work. Chaos is happening. 
I'm losing my patience maybe and I'm feeling myself getting the urge to stop it and yell. And and so how in the world do you pause and and regulate in that moment where it's just mass Mm. chaos? (laughs) No. Oh, Oh, I've heard this, this image so often, Daria. I can, I, I can't even count the times and guess what? The answer is the same is, is, Look to yourself, look to your own internal motivation, needs and desires, wants, and you to find that place of calm in yourself first, as always. And I see you nodding your head. I know I'm a parent. I've had this experience. You're a parent. I know you've had this experience. But that's really what this all requires. And, and, Understand our own stress response and give ourselves a moment to recover from stress. Uh, And the pause and play strategy, guess what, does work at home. It works in the controlled setting and it works at home too. Excuse me. We often develop a language at home that we all understand. So we can establish touch points, uh, anchors either visual anchors, when I hold something up, that means mama needs to stop. If I say a word, that means I have to stop. Mama has to stop. I use the pause and play. The children who are in my groups, guess what? They actually come and tell me. They say, Teacher Christy, I need a pause. And then we we can implement that. The children actually are very good at at assessing their own internal needs, wants, and motivations, that they're good at that. They understand uh, what is causing them stress at very early ages. And that's why we see that social referencing in our little babies, our zero to age two. When they are dysregulated, they will search the environment for that emotional anchor to help them get regulated again. So that language comes through uh, through the early childhood years, and we can actually support those, those signals and encourage that signaling. Actually, that is a good FEDC4. That's a robust functional, emotional, developmental capacity, uh, understanding that I can use someone else's idea for regulation. For yourself, you know, yep. Yes, that that's often, I think, um, of course, Dr. Greenspan's language will will stay, but that's often very confusing for for adults to hear that FEDC4 is about some sort of social problem, when really it's talking about that separation of self and others, and it's understanding that other people have ideas and that I can actually access those other people's ideas and use them to my benefit to help me with whatever I'm doing. If it is, if it really is a problem, I can seek that support there, but I can also net use it to just to navigate my, uh, my environment. So. And so you, do you say with children who haven't yet um, mastered or, are still working through the earlier capacities and they're not quite into four yet. Um, we would really monitor more and, and look proactively for the signals and then co-regulate with them before it escalates. Yes. 
Yes, and we really studied the environment. And I go back to a profile. And I love uh, Virginia Spielman's uh, talking, her uh, information about the sensory lifestyle mm-hmm. rather than the sensory diet, rather than constructing something separate or something special for a particular child is to um, look, look to the environment and design a devir- the environment. Uh, I lost my train of thought. Support the design that will support a child's profile. And so we look at the room or the, um, I'm looking at my own office. I'm looking at what you're looking at. Is there too much information in the environment? Is there too much sound? Uh, do we have an open space for movement breaks? Uh, can a child easily locate materials that they might need? Um, I work so much with parents just organizing the toys, believe it or not and just creating categories of toys because that supports ideation. That what can you Can you please come to my house and help me sort through our pile <laughs> in the basement, which is like toys everywhere? <laughs> any any time. But it's just a simple concept that if the blocks are in a designated place, uh, we can use the, the blocks for ideas. But if the blocks are mixed in with the Legos and the farm animals and the this and that, then uh, we, we can't get ideas uh, from that. So, so that's what I mean by organizing the environment. I do want to talk about siblings for a second, okay? And you had written me about one of the families that you had heard from, uh, that the family has five children and, and how do we do all of that? And one of the children, I think two of the children were typically, uh, three were typically developing and two were neurodiverse. And I tell you what, siblings give me the most information about their brother and sister that mom and dad are not even aware of. So I'm a group or we'll be in in the living room or in the playroom. And the older sibling will come up, or sometimes it's the younger one, and they'll say, oh, she won't like that. Or, oh, you know, or they bring a toy that they know that they have great circles of communication, great co-regulation with their sibling. So, hey, that is a resource that is like gold to me. And I often get the sibling talking about, how does bath time go? How is it at supper time? Uh, can you go out with your brother or sister? And they give me so much information and so, ma- so many valuable clues to uh, supporting that child's regulation. And I tell you what, I often align with the sibling. Uh, and I'll, in my mind, I'm thinking first support regulation, then engage. So with this, do the regulating, I can support regulation and the sibling can engage. And usually a sibling comes up with a great scenario, a great uh, idea that we can all join in on. And uh, I can pay attention to pacing, 
Uh, are we going too fast? Oh, let's ask that question again. Oh, let's think of a word that would go with this idea. Like I can do the regulation piece while the sibling then does the engagement. And it's wonderful. It's wonderful. That, that would be um, a wonderful tool for parents to have a little bit of coaching on that piece. Like how do I be that mediator supporting regulation while the kids engage. Yes. And I tell you what, that requires practice and it does. And, Sorry, and it, it requires practice and some coaching and some coaching. Yep. Yes. Yes. And it also requires, as you mentioned, understanding your own regulation process and your own sensory profile. Like where do you play the best? Do you play outside the best? Do you play in the pool the best? You know, do you play in, in a tent the best? Like know that about yourself and then, uh, then draw the children to you. And, you know, co-regulation I also think is misunderstood uh, out there in the world that in the DIR floor time model, we talk so much about following a child's lead. And, and it's true. We want to, we want to support a child's ideas and their desires and their motivations. But that's only one part of co-regulation. That co-regulation means that we enter one another's worlds. Not only do I enter my little one's world, but I support and encourage that they uh, come into my world. So I can, I can have ideas too, and we can, that story can grow and grow. And I'll tell you what, Daria, I just gave myself chills when I said what I said, because that's joy. That's where we feel the joy, and it's the gleam in the eye, and it's, it's beautiful. It's wonderful. Right. So, so um just to give some examples to our listeners and viewers about what we were talking about, I, I think this is an example of what you were saying. We have to understand our own regulations. So you said, do we, where do we play best? So for example, um, I'm a city person. I don't really, I'm, I'm not really an outdoors person, although I like to jog or run, but um, we have this backyard that's like sort of like a forest and I hate going outside because I'm out there. I'm like feeling bugs around me. I see bugs moving. There's every now and then there's a fox in the yard. There's, I'm like totally on edge being outside. So it's not fun for me and I'm not regulated and I'm not enjoying myself. And then I'm worried about my son throwing stuff over the fence into the ravine constantly and, or throwing stuff into the pool, whatever he finds is going to whip it on the roof. So like I'm stressed out being outside. So I'm guessing that for someone like me, you would say your best would be inside in a more controlled setting where I feel more like in control. Whereas my husband's totally fine outside. He loves the outdoors. He grew up walking through forests and he doesn't care if his fingers get dirty, if he picks up a stick and I'm like, you know, (laughs) so let him play outside. They can have fun. Um, and I would, so right off the bat, that's something that's so obvious that we can all take away. That we can take, right, exactly. And remember our children need both. 
And I want, you know, they need uh, what's great for dad and they need what's great for mom. And I think we kind of get stuck in uh, thinking what's great for my child. And we, we disregard where we feel the most comfortable playing. And, and we both have to really feel comfortable playing. And I'll tell you what, in that really healthy, secure, trusting, joyful relationship with mom or dad, that little one, here we go, really won't care where they are playing. If you are there and you are their emotional anchor, then they will enter into that co-regulation and you'll get much better results. Now, here's the deal. Our children do have to like go to the store and go to church and, you know, go places with our family. And, you know, I've got a ton of strategies for, for that as well, but central to all of those strategies is me, is you. It's that trusting relationship that, that now in children, we can prep them for their own stress responses. You know, we can say, we're going to do this as a family. It's going to be really hard. I'm right here and I'm going to be right here and we'll go as long as we can as a group. Our group will pay attention to your internal needs, wants, and desires as a family member, just like the rest of us. And we'll navigate as we go. And just that frees moms and dads of their own expectations that, you know, I got to do this certain outing or I have to have fun at this certain place. But, uh, you know, I erase all of that and tune into what will be regulating for your little group and, and go with that. Another great point, and um, that just made me aware of, of another regulation difference just between me and my husband. I'm so comfortable bringing my son to all kinds of different events. We go see model train shows. We go to people's houses and see model mm-hmm. trains. We go to um, people's houses for play dates or whatever. And I love going out and doing stuff. And, and I noticed that my husband is a little bit more stressed in public settings because he's a lot um, more worried about the perception of others and disturbing others and, and in restaurants too. Um, whereas at home, he, I'm more concerned about um, things getting messy and untidy and I like to keep things, you know, a certain way and he's the opposite. So at home, he's wonderful playing with my son, whereas I'm stressed out. So um, yeah. the, I think the key to that as well is um, besides looking at the one-on-one play settings, um, we're talking about groups here and you're saying focusing on the family event. And then that's taking into account, not just um, the children's preferences and one parent's preference, but if we're going out as a family, both of our preferences. So maybe um, dad takes over at some point where I'm a little bit stressed and then mom takes over when dad's a little bit stressed or whatever. Um, And, and like you said, setting those expectations up front that, you know, um, some things might happen. We'll go as long as we can. We're right here. Don't worry about it. And just giving that reassurance to be that emotional anchor is what's really key. 
Yeah, even, you know, even to between you and your husband is when your husband gets stressed, you know, you can remind him, I'm right here. I got this. And at home, he can do the same for you. Uh, I, I, you know, my husband and I do exactly the same thing. And it, it is intuitive. Uh, but to bring it to our consciousness makes it intentional. And when we make it intentional, then we're not apt to be triggered. Uh, one of your podcasts, you know, and I forget who it was. Oh, it might have been Ira. Uh, I, I forget who it was, but he talked about uh, the midbrain responses. And when we prep uh, each other and we put into words what our expectations can be, and will be that that brings the triggers out of our midbrain and puts them into the prefrontal cortex where we can navigate them and where we can uh, make decisions about our stressors and our stress responses. So putting it into speech and language is really important. Um, I can't talk about the reflective process and the reflective practice strategies enough. What I just described is reflective practice, is what are the tools I'm going to need to go into this situation? Who are my emotional touchstones? Who are my emotional anchors? Who are my co-regulators? Let's all be uh, committed to one another, and then we proceed. Um, It really makes a huge difference. You know, we actually have research on um, the small group reflective process and reflective practice. And we know that systems change. The way a group thinks begins with these simple informal interactions. And we call them kitchen, oh, what does it say in the literature? Um, Small groups that meet in people's kitchens actually have the greatest systems change. So mom and dad putting their heads together before an outing and talking it over will change the system of the family when, when you're out and it can be, uh, it can be blowing it. it, it, Families tell me that it has changed their lives and they can now go places because of that, that single piece of kind of laying out the expectations and, identifying our own personal triggers and letting someone else in, if you will. That's, that's wonderful, wonderful information. Yeah. yeah. You know, I have another strategy. I took some notes because, uh, uh, I, of course, I knew you and I were going to get together. That one other strategy I use, and I use this even for very young children who are not reading, But before we start a session, and siblings and moms and dads participate in this, is I just get a piece of paper, my notepad, and I actually jot down, you know, what what do we want to do today? You know, what what do you want to do? What do you want to do? And I'll get some ideas of, you know, first we want to organize our bodies and maybe do an obstacle course. And, and one of the children usually gives the first idea. And we, you know, we kind of go 
through. And I also ask like, oh, what has really been bothering you this week? You know, my children who are verbal and sometimes it's mom who answers like, oh, what, what has been the toughie? What's been a toughie this week? They, uh, siblings always go, oh, you know, Bobby threw all the bubbles out of the bath last night. So, you know, oh, let's work on that idea, you know, and, and I just jot some things down. And the fact that everyone sees me jotting that down seems to be regulating for them. And once again, I think it's that concrete anchor that when my body or my, um, my ideas or my thoughts become disorganized, we can come back to our list, we can change it, we can add ideas, we can, you know, it, it's, it's dynamic, it's alive, it flows. And sometimes we don't do the ideas at all. And sometimes at the end of the session, I'll go, oh, look at all these other ideas we came up with. We didn't even do the ideas on the paper that, oh man, we really went in a different direction. And support that and rejoice in that, that, that that's a wonderful headway uh, to be that creative and that spontaneous. But it really, and, and when children become, like when I'm in my group over at Touchstone, and my group is, is becoming disorganized, I can uh, bring us back to the carpet and I can say, I think we need to change our list a little bit. You know, it looks like looks like we have some other ideas going. Let's add to our list. And that that draws us back together to the group feelings, thoughts, the group mentality, the group activity, and uh, the co-regulation can begin again. So that's another little strategy I love using. Great. I'm looking at my list here. What else can I what else can I add? So what about um, a parent who has their child home for the summer and they have played, they have other kids coming in to play with their child. And um, one example that a parent gave me was uh, the daughter went on and on for about 20 minutes talking about ballet, everything about Swan Lake, everything about this, everything about that. That's her special interest is ballet. And the other child said, I'm bored. I want to go home. So the mother, I thought, did a wonderful job of saying, well, wait, before you go home, let's dance. And so she put on the music and they did ballet dancing together. And then she said, oh, I don't want to go home anymore. And so they had fun. So her question was, um, and also an example of like maybe being at a birthday party when everybody's sitting and listening or doing some activity and then the child isn't waiting, but they're, you know, they're, they're starting, the autistic child is starting to talk and answer inappropriately because doesn't realize the social cues of waiting for their turn. And instead of shutting that child down, the mother wants to communicate to the others like, this is her way of communicating with you guys. She's excited to share with you. Um, don't say be quiet. It's not your turn. Or so, you know what I mean? Like she, she's struggling to how to be the mediator between the neurotypical visitors who really don't know anything about autism where she happens to live in Europe and trying to, you know, mediate that space for her child and the other children to come together and play. And, and at the same time sort of educate the other parent or parents. 
Yeah, well, I think she did a fantastic job by verbalizing that, oh, she's very excited about this idea. I often uh, support the children who are allowing the neurodiverse child to kind of take over a little bit, that I actually validate the other children like, oh, man, you're really waiting, aren't you? It's going on a little long, isn't it? But you know what? Give, let's give her give her a few more ideas and and validate the typically developing children so that they feel good and they feel like they are giving another person support which is a wonderful skill for them and when a child guess what we have to validate that and we have to say yeah she's going on a little long isn't she yes like let 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 me see if I can help this situation out. And then mama can say, can give a cue. Um, okay, one more idea. And then it's going to be Cindy's turn. Uh, or, you know, oh, we're dying to dance. And insert an idea that is, is less boring. I mean, frankly. But we really do want to validate and support the neurotypical children that they're doing a good job and that that's what it means for us all to be in a group that we all have to do our part and y'all are doing your part and validate that and support them you know uh, so much of my work at, at our lab school is about supporting the typically developing children rather than the neurodiverse child because what I have found that children, peers, are the best models for our neurodiverse children, but they are not very good supports. You know, they, they, they expect a typical response. So they are the ones who actually need the support in those small group settings. I like to work in like a group, one uh neurodiverse child and two typically developing children and then the two typically developing children with my mediation can support one another to stay in the interaction and uh, that that's a really good uh, what do I want to say um, and a good weight for everyone to bear and I, I it seems like when the fourth child walks up uh, things more stressful. So my my ideal, if I'm actually doing a session, is that configuration. It works really beautifully. Hey, I had an idea for the outdoor uh, environment in your backyard. Is we have uh, implemented at the lab. uh, You have seen their little. like they're molded plastic and you can uh, snap them together, little uh, barriers to make a little enclosure. And we have added like four or five of them together to kind of section off uh, an area of our very huge play yard. And we put it right smack in the middle of the play yard. We do not put it to the side. Uh, but that really helps our, ch- our children who have difficulty spatial processing in these very large areas and um, and our our neurotypical children can join as they would like 
And usually what I find, Daria, is I have to limit the number of typically developing children. Like they see the materials in there and they see us playing and they want to join us. And and it's it's wonderful. And it, it just gives me an outdoor space that I can control things uh, from a sensory perspective a little better. I can provide a little better sensory support. Right, right. Oh, I've gone on and on. No, no, that's great. Um, I had an example of something that happened I'd love to get your feedback on. Um, my son recently discovered that there are play places at McDonald's. So every time we drive by McDonald's, I want to go there. I see a slide. So um, I thought, well, what a great opportunity for him to interact with neurotypical children. Now that he's in FEDC4, he's very communicative. He's super interested in, in peers. So we've been going. And I've gotten so comfortable with it that I was just hanging out on my phone, not even paying attention until a little girl came. The dad was sitting beside me. This little girl came and next to me, she said, excuse me, your son is bullying me. And I was like, I said, oh, sweetie, oh, no, no, he's not, he's not bullying you. Um, what, well, what did he do? And she said, he keeps following me and he's laughing at me. And I said, oh, sweetheart, he's, he's autistic. Do you know what that means? And, and she said, no. And the dad said, oh, there's some kids like that at your school. She didn't seem to know. I said, well, his brain works a little bit differently than ours. And he's like a younger child in a bigger boy's body. And so he's so excited to play with other kids. And he's laughing because he's having so much fun. I, I promise you, he's not laughing at you. And he's so excited to see you play. And he really wants to play with you, but he doesn't really know how to. And so he's really excited. And that's why he's following you. He wants to play with you. Um, and I, and then I said, well, I thanked her for telling me, but I said, um, you could, if it bothers you, you can say, oh, I don't want to play with you. Um, but after the whole process, the dad thanked me and said, oh, she's a little sensitive sometimes. And I said, no, no, no. It's great that she told me that. But then I felt bad because I thought I should have validated what she said more too, because I don't want her to not tell anyone if someone really is bullying her, her in the future. Cause I'm saying, no, no, he wasn't bullying you. Cause, but I didn't say it like I was very, it's almost like you, you said you're doing floor time with the neurotypical kids. <laughs> right, right. So I'm just wondering if something like that happens again, did I do the right thing? What else could I have done? Um, because she also looked like the character Amaya in PJ Masks, which he loves. So he saw this girl with brown hair and glasses, and he's thinking, Amaya, Amaya. And I heard her calling. I heard him calling her Amaya when she went back. So he's oh. like, Amaya, Amaya, go here. Go down the slide. And he's like, ha, 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 ha. And he's laughing and jumping when, when she sees it. And it scared her. So I, I felt so bad for her, but then I was so excited that my son was happy to play with other kids. But it never occurred to me that this scenario would happen. So I'm just curious how you would handle that. Yeah, I think you did a great job putting into words and, and understanding that she felt, you know, kind of threatened. Uh, but that but that wasn't what was happening. And I think you really her 
understand this new idea that something that looked like bullying, I'm glad I checked it out because it isn't bullying. But the one thing I could add is just validate her for coming to tell you. And, and, and we can also validate her feelings like, Oh, I bet that was rough, you know? Oh, and, and you can use your affect and go, I know, you know, sometimes he, sometimes his excitement and happiness gets a bit overwhelming, huh? And get, you know, draw her into your world. That's that co-regulation once again, but I think you did a beautiful, a beautiful support for your son and a beautiful support for her. I think that, that you are, you're a star that, that, (laughs) Well, that's the only. I, I wish I would have validated her more because you know, as a woman too, I don't want her growing up thinking like, "Oh, next time some guys come and laugh at me, that I just have to take it right." Because it's important. The whole Me Too movement and everything. She has to stand up for herself. So I wish I would have done more of that. But all I was thinking about is, no, I have to defend my son. <laughs> He's not a. Well, mom. and I was going to mention your own trigger. You know, yeah. like that would have triggered me. Like, wait a minute, that wasn't bullying. <laughs> You know, and, and right, defending your little one. But it's a both and. You know, we can do it both. We can defend our little one and support the child who's uh, having that experience. And really, it's it's almost working in FEDC 6 with the neurotypical child to, in that sixth capacity, it's logical thinking bridges between Mm -hmm. ideas and, and having... Um, a discussion about, you know, it's not just black and white. There's all these gray areas and it looks like bullying, but wait a second. He's acting a little bit different than other 10 year olds. He's a boy who's older than me and, and he's really like upregulated and laughing and, and it's, it's odd. I haven't seen it before. What could this be? And just kind of get getting her mind to scan and think about different possibilities. It isn't it a little bit like that? <laughs> Absolutely, that uh, you spot on. Yes, definitely. And that it goes way beyond FEDC six. I mean, this, this little girl, uh, you know, can function in gray area thinking That's and seven, that eight, nine. Yes, yes, that relativistic thinking that, you know, there's more than one answer here, and one answer is bullying, but another answer is there might be a special need, a different way of processing, da-da-da-da-da, so absolutely, absolutely. And what about the piece of um, other parents, so like at the mom at the birthday party whose other parents might be looking at their child, like thinking your child's being inappropriate, your child's acting up, your child's misbehaving, and often thinking that our children are misbehaving. Um, another day at the play place, my son was grabbed a little kid and was holding like this other kid in a huddle, and the kid was crying and squirming and trying to get away, and the dad says, excuse me, your son, oh, and I was like, oh, stop it, stop it, sweetie, let go, let go. <laughs> so, and I, I, you know, oh, he's autistic, I understand, thank you for telling me, he just needs some extra social support, I'm really sorry, I should have been watching, kind of thing, but what is the best way to mediate with other parents who are neurotypical of neurotypical kids mm-hmm. who may be judging our children's behavior as misbehaving mm-hmm. in these group settings. Mm-hmm. 
Well, the first thing that comes to me is, you know, we can see our own triggers, you know, and feel our own triggers. And guess what? The triggers in other parents are are happening at the same time. So, so what's going to be most important is to once again, seek co-regulation with the other parent. And the first way we do that is to say, I see your perspective. I see that it's really like, like, oh my gosh, you're right. It is awful to see my son uh, holding on to your little one and I'm on it. Okay, that's the first thing. The second thing is then, then go do it and then come back to that parent and say, I really saw your stress and I felt it too. And so now you're two parents who are equally yoked who can talk it through and talk about it. But so often when we're triggered, it's really hard to validate and verify another parent's trigger. As a matter of fact, we might even get angry and we might feel like, you know, uh, you know, don't, uh, you don't have any right to feel that way because my child is the one that has a special need. And, and, Oh, Daria, we need the relationships with the parents as much as our children need those peer relations. So to meet that that fellow parent at their time of stress and validate that that you understand that they were stressed is what will um, draw you two together. Absolutely. And I think the trick about that is to understand that sometimes the other parent or general person in the public is just not going to be nice to you (laughs) and they're not going to be gracious and understand and they're going to be a jerk and you can't take that personally. Exactly. Exactly. You try to co-regulate with them. They, they at that moment. So let it rest. Exactly. Exactly. And remember, always remember, it's about their stress response, not you. Yes. That's their stress response. So, you know, that, I think that helps all of us. It's a good tip for all of us. And we can never, ever know where another person's stress response is coming from. We don't know what's happened to them, not only in their lifetime, their childhood, with their own families, but in the 10 minutes before we saw them. Maybe they just got cut off in traffic and they're still like shaking or or we have no clue. Their, their uh, relative is on their deathbed dying of cancer or something. You have no clue what's happening or, or they just won the lottery and they're super happy and then wrecked their good mood. Who knows? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Well, um, I want to thank you so much, Christy. This is such great information. And for listeners, this is affectautism.com. The blog post will be, um, that's associated with this blog. We'll have links to some of the things we talked about, links to Christy's center, um, the Touchstone Family Development Center in Fresno, California, that offers speech and language and, and um, OT, I believe. And mm-hmm. OT, DIR, social groups. Uh, family yep. counseling. Yep. Um, we'll have a link to that and uh, I'll try and, and um, segregate out some of the different strategies that you mentioned, link back to some other podcasts I've done, like the podcast I did with Virginia Spielman about sensory lifestyle. So check mm-hmm. that out at affectautism.com. You can do a search for Christy Gozi, G-O-S-E, and it'll come up. 
And um, thank you so much. Would you be willing to come back in the future and do a follow-up with us? I'd be delighted. I'd be (laughs) delighted. Thank you so much for having me. Wonderful. Thanks. Until next time, here's to affecting autism through play.